From Relay FM, this is Flashback. This season, we're looking at failed tech products to see what we can learn by studying their demises. My name is Quinn Nelson, and I am joined by my co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hey, Quinn. How's it going, Stephen? It's going pretty well. Just, uh, you know, hanging out, talking about old computers. It's a pretty good way to spend an evening. Yeah, not bad at all. I mean, what else are you going to do, right? Yeah, I mean, spend time with my family or work out. Nah. Take a bath. Definitely not that one. Those are three distinct things. <laughs> yeah, really hopefully they don't go all hand in hand. Uh-uh. So what's on the, the docket for today? Oh, boy. We've uh, we've got a doozy for you. I kind of admitted somewhat ashamedly in the last episode that I didn't know much about today's topic, B computer. And so I've spent probably a few hours researching it. And you were already the resident expert, so I will defer to you with any questions. <laughs> oh, boy. But holy smokes. How did I not know about B Computer before? This is a wild company. It is. It's really wild. It's it's another example of like weird 80s and 90s computing stuff. And they hung on a lot longer than I realized. Mm-hmm. I mean, I knew kind of the broad strokes of this before our research. Uh, and I knew quite a bit about the OS, which we'll get to. But um, let's do some background first before we get into what they were up to. Okay, sure. So, Stephen, uh, everything is connected. That's a different podcast. <laughs> What's old is new again. Time is a perfect circle. This is a fun episode because it ties into prior episodes of Flashback that we've already done, as well as episodes that I expect us to do in the future. So let's set the scene for this episode really quickly, all right? Okay. The late 1970s and early 1980s were perhaps the most important era for the personal computer. What was previously pretty much limited to only geeks that were willing to hobble together microchips and write their own code, computers had become a still shiny and new but more prevalent staple in American homes. And cheap computers intended for educational and and entertainment use really led to market saturation. There were just tons of companies, right? Oh, yeah. History is littered, like, just littered with dead microcomputer companies. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in the 1980s alone, you've got hundreds of small computer makers that came into existence. Uh, some of them had really unique big ideas, others not so much. But all of this led to pricing wards and kind of the emergence of early market leaders that really thinned out the number of computer companies pretty quickly. Um, those market innovation leaders, well, names we still know today, the IBM PC and Macintosh, uh, both quickly made kind of the 16-bit computers that we had been used to in the late 70s and early 80s feel, well, really pretty old. Yeah, 100%. But even in the late 80s, it's still sort of early days. So sure. it, it wasn't the sort of battle we see now between Mac OS, Windows, and um, I guess the Linux people. Um, there were still dozens. I guess them. Yeah, those guys. Uh, th- there were dozens of GUI-based operating systems in like varying states of completion. Some of these things you look into were very rough around the edges. Yeah. Some were easier to use than others. Some had more features. Uh, and in this chaos, uh, some saw an opportunity. We're going to start talking about be be incorporated in a second. But first, we need to remember our old friend Steve Sackman. Yes. Yeah. Do, do you remember him? Yeah, he uh, worked with the Newton Project. That's right. We already talked about him. So he was kind of the the creator of the Newton, head of the Newton. It was his idea, and he was the one that kind of made the project happen. We also need to mention Jean-Louis Gasset 
um, who was a big name in Apple history. Mm -hmm. Uh, He held a number of executive positions and helped usher in products that we know today really well, like uh, Macintosh. Ever heard of that? I have. Yeah. So it was, you know, he was a big wig at Apple. And it was even rumored in the late 1980s that the Gasset would be the one selected by the board of directors to replace John Scully as CEO when the time came. Um, so he was no slouch. Uh, anyway, Gasset and, well, Sackman, um, Sackman was kind of allowed to begin the Newton project and head it because Gasset was an executive at Apple at the time. And you'll remember, well, the Newton project kind of spiraled out of control. Yes. <laughs> to, to put things lightly. Uh-huh. <laughs> so relations between Gasset and, and Scully had soured, and he was forced out of Apple due to non-performance, despite the behest of many Apple employees who adored this guy. I had no idea, but he was really, really well-liked by many people in Apple and was kind of viewed to be the driving force behind what little success Apple still had in the late 80s and early 90s. Gasset writes this wonderful newsletter called Monday Note that comes out every weekend. It comes out Sunday night or Monday morning. And he is still a influential voice in technology. Yeah, it's it's great. I I don't miss an episode. Um, an episode. Oh, cool. I don't miss a video. That's like you sit calling our listeners. <laughs> what have I done? What have I done? <sighs> I got gotcha. you. <laughs> Media is very, very hard. That's that's the lesson here. Mm-hmm. Also hard computer companies. So all this shake shake up shake down shake up shake down shake yeah. all around. Um, both. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, the shake all around was happening at Apple, and uh, so these guys end up uh, both outside of Apple, and they ended up forming B Incorporated uh, B E uh, with the help of several other former Apple employees who had also been shown the door. Yeah, well, not vital to the story. One of the fun things that I kind of learned is why the name B Inc. You'll remember when you first mentioned that on the podcast a couple weeks ago, I said, uh, B Computer, what what is that? (laughs) Because it doesn't seem on the surface like a very good name. Apparently, Gasset had originally wanted to call the company, are you ready for this? United Technoids Incorporated. Yikes. Yeah. Sackman allegedly hated the name, and uh, I don't blame him at all. And he said that he would start looking uh, through the dictionary for something better. And it was reported that a few days later, Gasset had inquired about how the hunt for a name was going. And Sackman had stated that he had just gotten tired and stopped looking at B. And Gasset then said, B is nice. End of story. And so that gives us B Incorporated, which is the computer company that we will be talking about today. The side effect of this, it's impossible to Google for this company. It really is. Just Google search B computer. Like it's, it nope. is, you can't do it. Uh, Still doesn't show up. Nope. That was not a problem they could foresee, I guess, but it was definitely uh, an issue in our research. Yeah. So we're going to talk about both the hardware and the software this company came up with. They sort of took the the Apple approach or the next approach, other companies in this era, of wanting to handle the whole stack. You know, they, they weren't happy with just putting, you know, someone like putting DOS on their computers, right? Or, or putting sure. early versions of Windows on their computers. They wanted to be a true alternative. And they really went after the Macintosh, which we'll talk about. But before we get there, uh, I'd like to take a moment and share with everybody about Relay membership. So if you head on over to relay.fm slash membership. You can learn more about some of the great perks our members get. Uh, Those include some really cool uh, members-only wallpapers, several members-only podcasts, including a new one that Mike Hurley and I are starting, looking at behind the scenes of what it takes to run 
uh, Relay FM. Hmm. Uh, so go check that out. You can pick the show that you want to you want to support. Of course, I would recommend this show. I'd recommend Flashback. But we have lots of great shows you can choose from. Uh, so head on over to Relay.fm slash membership to learn more. Perfect. So we'll talk about BOS in a minute that you mentioned. But I really think we need to talk about the hardware. It's not crazy interesting. The OS is where things get really special. Mm-hmm. But um, while they ended up licensing the operating system to a few kind of one-off hardware projects, their main bread and butter was a personal computer, a desktop machine called B-Box. 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 Wow. You can just delete that. No, that's that's 100% staying in. <laughs> Uh, okay, look, Stephen, <laughs> I was really little when this thing was released in 1995, so I don't have much of a point of reference for how tech was at the time, but even for the time, people thought this was ugly, right? Wasn't it? Yeah, it's it's not great. It's sort of hard to describe the way this looks, so if you look in your podcast player of choice like right now, there'll, there'll be a picture of it as the chapter artwork, but I think that the gist of it is it, it does look very 90s, right? It's It's beige, but they didn't want to just be beige, so they have some blue mixed in there. Uh, it sort of looks like uh, Greco-Roman columns. Mm-hmm. Yes, it does. I was going to say that. It's not the best-looking 90s computer there ever was, but it it is of its time, right? It's of its time. Yeah, sure, sure. I hate it. <laughs> but that's okay. I didn't own one, and, um, well, not even a few thousand people did. So uh, let's, talk about <laughs> let's talk about the hardware. While it didn't look super cool, there were some cool hardware features that the machine had. Do you know any of those, Stephen? Let's talk about them. Yeah, yeah, there's there's a couple of cool things here. So, like we said, they really were going after Apple and the Macintosh. They really wanted to build an alternative to the to the high-end Mac market. And they broke ground as being a dual CPU hmm. computer. Now, we think about that now and that's that's not a big deal, right? All of our computers have multiple cores. A lot of computers have multiple processors, not yeah. any of Apple's, but, you know, other companies sure, sure servers very common servers yeah. yeah yeah this multi-core multi-processor life that we all understand now a lot of it started with b so they built this system around a pair of 66 megahertz ibm power pc 603 cpus and uh, mac fans out there will recognize that string of word spaghetti because the power pc 603 was a big deal when it came to the Mac. It was originally designed for use in the Macintosh PowerBook line, but I'm going to take a tangent. I'm sorry. Sure. So when when Apple moved from the 68K processors to the PowerPC processors, most of the macOS system itself was emulated. The software wasn't ready. They did the transition. And this 603 wasn't really fast enough for the emulation to feel good. It had a pretty small cache and lacked some other really technical features. So the 603 didn't end up in that many Macs, but it did mm-hmm. end up in your beloved B-Box. Yes. Beloved. It also beloved ended up, well, B-Box. But beloved by some. It also ended up in the Performa 5200, uh, which utilized the same 603 CPU, which was famously unreliable and considered to by many, uh, to be basically the worst Mac of all time. Uh, the computer had just a flurry of problems from networking, performance, stability, and bus problems, as well as ROM bugs and poor hard disk performance. It was a really bad Mac. And, and none of these problems 
were inherently the fault of the 603, but it led to the processor getting a bit of a bad reputation and inventory was pretty plentiful. So for BOS, that became an opportunity to get some of these uh, CPUs. And, and I mean, look, what they did was they doubled the CPU power by using multiple ones. And these low cash power PC 603 actually ended up being pretty powerful when added in numbers to their machines. Two was pretty freaking awesome. Yeah, if, if if one CPU is kind of lame, just put a second one in there and it gets better. Fixed. Problem solved. <laughs> fixed. We fixed it. <laughs> yeah. There you go. So there's uh, there's this dual CPU thing, which is is really cool. But it wasn't the only unique thing in this computer, was it? Mm-mm. Okay. As you may be able to tell while looking at the photo of this machine, there are two vertical green LED strips on the front panel of the computer. Uh, these were dubbed blinking lights, which is not a term that Bbox came up with. This has been around for a while, but basically what these lights do is they have the unique ability to act as a visual indicator of CPU load. So the more lights in number that were illuminated, the harder each individual CPU was working. Um, it was reported that lights would max out under heavy load, but only after running a particularly stressful benchmark at a time, uh, or, or you know, multiple benchmarks at a time, like video streams running simultaneously. So maybe that's six three processors weren't so terrible after all tell me the truth do you want do you want blinking lights on your mac pro uh well you know i do have some form of lights in my mac pro i know uh, but they're just rgb you got to wire them up to the to the cpu Uh, you're gonna be jealous but it looks really good i'll I'll send you a photo so you can look at it later trust me (laughs) i saw your video (laughs) i know but i just need you to see it right here in the element okay 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 all right so we have this, uh, the blinking lights. Uh, I found a interview with the designer of this front panel. Yes. And they really wanted to show off that it had, oh, that is a nice picture. Look at that. Uh, look at that Mac Pro there. I appreciate it. They really <laughs> wanted to show off this dual CPU system. This was a huge deal. And so the idea came about that there would be two sets of LEDs and they would show off what the CPUs were doing. And this was done through direct load monitoring, like you said. So the the harder the machine was working, the more LEDs you would have mm-hmm. lit up, the bigger party you'd be having on your front bezel. Sure. And there was a there was a joke apparently that if you wanted your boss to think you were really busy, you would run some sort of program in the background to fire up those CPUs. Like, oh he's <laughs> he's doing video work. Leave him alone. He's working hard. Yeah. <laughs> working hard. That's too funny. Well fun fact, I mean this basic principle is still around today. Uh, AMD released a Radeon Vega 64 GPU, I don't know what, a couple years ago now? Yeah. And I have one in a workstation PC that we use here for video editing. And it has, and this is like a literal GPU that you could buy brand new a couple years ago. It has a strip of 10 LED lights um, that you can change the color from red to blue. I think it's just aesthetic. It doesn't make a difference. But similar to Beebox, the number of lights illuminate based on the total power draw of the GPU, which uh, with GPUs, since they're a little more chill than CPUs, is, is relative to the total load of the GPU. So basically the exact same implementation that the B-Box had. Uh, gimmicky? Yeah, maybe a little bit, but they're pretty fun. They are bright, though, so I've turned them off. But. <laughs> <laughs> then there's yeah. the geek port. Oh, Wow. Mm. That Geek sounds port. really not nerdy at all. As far as we can tell, and if someone out there knows, like, let us know because we'd like to. We'd like to know. It's really hard to understand what this connector did. Oh, good. It's not just you. It's not just me that's confused. Rather, 
No, no, I, I tried reading about this and like I, I am uh, unclear. So it was a 37 pin connector that allowed end users to use the port for basically anything they wanted. Hmm. So you could make or assumedly buy on the third party, I was going to say websites, but the third party magazines or whatever, <laughs> unique hardware that would interface with the B box and with BOS. So I, I guess there was some sort of expansion or maybe you could do like video stuff. It's all very uh, unclear. And the best that we can tell, it, it never took off. The idea, I think, was that you could create your own devices to interface with the OS yeah. um, and your own controllers. Uh, the pin, you know, the pinout was actually pretty cool. It had analog and digital I.O., as well as DC power. And then if you look at the connector, it's a really unusual connector. Not only is it huge because it's 37 pins, but the pins are pretty separate. I mean, there's quite a bit of distance in between the two. And that was rumored to be such that um, if you had cables that were crudely soldered together while you were developing your product, that they wouldn't touch and short out, which is interesting. <laughs> Anyways, there were a couple of other interesting things that the B-Box did. It shipped with eight uh, RAM slots, SIM slots, which was uncommon for the time and still is today, but was possible because, again, these machines were using dual CPUs. Right. So it was basically four, uh, two channels per CPU. And this allowed up to 256 megabytes of memory expansion, which was nearly unprecedented at the time. And uh, yeah, so that's that's pretty neat. It also didn't ship with onboard networking, which today would seem like an outrageous kind of thing to do. And it, it kind of did at the time, too. It was pretty unusual in the mid kind of by the mid 90s and the 80s this was common but when this machine released uh, built-in network cards were fairly common uh, b said that they didn't do it because they didn't want to limit users to any specific one form of networking be that ethernet or modem or other networking style so they just installed nothing and allowed the end user to install their own network card I don't know how good driver support was, but, you know, that's a whole nother problem in and of itself. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have some information on that as we talk about yeah. the OS. Oh, perfect. So the Dual 603, 66 megahertz B-Box was released in October of 1995. It cost $1,600. And a year later, it uh, had a bigger brother. The Dual 603E mm. PowerPC showed up, 133 megahertz. This is a processor that did show up in a bunch of Macs. Yeah. Uh, and it was available for $3,000. There was rumors that there were prototypes having dual and even quad 200 megahertz CPUs, but they never made it out the door. Hmm. You know, it's not an inexpensive computer for what it was, but it doesn't seem too ostentatiously priced. Especially with only so many lights on it. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, each light makes it 10% faster. That's right. PC gamers know this. Right. It's true. Perfect. So let's talk about the software a little bit. So like I said, B Computer, they built the B Box. B Box. And then they built the OS that ran it called BOS. So they were, again, leading the time. You know, Mac OS, TV OS, BOS. Hey, there you go. Uh, you have to be very careful when you type it or you end up, you know, with some funny words. The BSOS, I think I, I Googled for that several times. Uh. <laughs> Let's talk a little about the history of BOS. It was initially designed to support the AT&T Hobbit processors, which again, harken back to the Newton episode. Yeah, exactly. As you talked about with the B-Box, they quickly pivoted to the PowerPC. They wanted to be seen again as a competitor to the Macintosh. But what, what's cool about this is is that it was written from scratch, which meant that BOS didn't come with a lot of the historical baggage that other OSs accumulate over time. Remember, we talked about System 7. When Apple moved to the PowerPC, a lot of that code had to be emulated for years until they kind of got all that caught up. And of course, you look at 
later versions of Mac OS before yeah. Mac OS 10, Windows, a lot of these OSs that have been around a long time, they get a lot of cruff. They have a lot of things they have to support for a long time. But when you start with zero, uh, you can do what you want, just like Android or iOS, right? You're kind of starting from, from scratch. So the company really saw BOS as an opportunity. It launched in 95. Apple System 7 was already falling behind. Mac OS, the, that team was really treading water. Yeah. Apple was unable to shoehorn features like preemptive multitasking into Mac OS, uh, which made the Mac unstable because all the memory was in one pool. That if one application crashed, the whole computer would crash. And so B got to basically stroll onto the scene with all these modern features right from day one. That's right. It actually kind of harkens back to something we had mentioned in our episode zero, which if you're a Relay FM member, you can go listen to. But we kind of talked about how Apple actually ended up acquiring intellectual property from a third-party company because they were the ones that had integrated multiple processor (laughs) support into Mac OS. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. Anyways, uh, this meant that BOS wasn't only fast, but it was stable under heavy workloads, exactly the type of thing that B had been designed for. All of that technology was put in place to position BOS as a modern alternative to the Mac for those in creative industries, right? The, The system included rich multimedia support and even a bash interface, although the underlying system was not based on actual Unix, which is kind of interesting. Apple had played with that too about this time with AUX of like, can we give you like a Unix playground without, you know, it's different now with Mac OS being built atop Unix. Sure. This just gave gave developers more options. And uh, yeah, BOS was, was right there in it. Yeah, I mean, that's not to say that the operating system was perfect, though. Mm-mm. Early versions of the OS didn't even support file sharing or printing, which <laughs> might seem a little archaic now, but printing was a big deal back yeah. in the 90s, especially for creative applications, right? Also file sharing. <laughs> oh, that's, uh, you're going to want that. Yeah, a sneaker net, you know, you put some floppies in there. I mean, it does share uh, the namesake, the camel case naming of iOS, and iOS couldn't really share files until a couple years ago. It still doesn't have floppy to support. Come on, Apple. (laughs) That's true. They'll never get... Actually, I wonder... It has a USB port on it, technically, through the camera connector kit. I'm sure someone has tried this. Ooh, this is good. That's a good video. All right, Stephen, it's your your video. Take it away. (laughs) So let's talk about the interface here and we have some screen sh- uh, uh, some screenshot links in the show notes because the interface is is definitely of its time it looks like the mid 90s it, it yeah. takes a lot of ideas from mac os but i was really surprised how many ideas it took from next step yes you know, the the os that the next was working on the ui was colorful and clean it used like these bright yellow tabs to name windows it was playful had simple you know solid gray window chrome but it gets really interesting because users could change things like the system font or colors without the need of hacky tools like ResEdit on the Mac. Oh, cool. This wasn't perfect. You could like rename something and BOS simply cut the text off if it was too wide. <laughs> uh, but it was an environment users could play in. But it really gets wild when we talk about the B menu. Hmm. That naming scheme is just solid all the way through. It didn't include a menu bar at the top of the screen like Mac OS, didn't really have a taskbar like Windows. Everything was on this floating B menu, which was very similar to the floating menu tool or like prototype dock that 
Next had built in Next Step. Yeah, I was going to say, that sounds familiar. Yeah, it's it's very much like Next Step. And this B menu basically did everything. So you could put widgets in there, like clocks or list of your running applications. Your system-wide menus were in there. So things like search, which was a big deal in BOS. They were really happy and proud of their search uh, technology. You know, power states, like rebooting your computer. All of that sort of stuff was in the B menu. And then if you had any attached drives, they showed up there. It, it really... I had the sense it really could get out of hand pretty quickly. Yeah, but you know what? I mean, that's a lot, but it sounds kind of cool. It, it To me, I'm just spitballing here, but I feel like if you look at macOS, the dock has mostly been used as a launcher, right? Mm-hmm. And I feel like Dashboard, if anyone remembers that, maybe speaks a little bit in uh, kind of heritage to this, I guess, because you get kind of these smaller widgets without actually having to launch an app open. And that's gone in macOS. And there, I mean, some things sound actually kind of handy, like mountable drives popping up in the dock. Like, I would love that, but it just it doesn't happen. Yeah, doesn't happen. Well, in 1997, BOS wasn't done growing. It gained a new file system known as APF, oh, excuse me, uh, BFS. <laughs> and like the OS itself, it pioneered many modern features, such as a 64-bit address space, the use of journaling, and support for things like streaming media formats, which are all hyper ubiquitous. I mean, really, really unprecedentedly cool back back when they came around. Oh, yeah. And, you know, we we had said that they they were really proud of their search technology. This pushed that even further by doing a lot of met- metadata stuff and other things in the file system. You could speed up a lot of those operations. Hmm. Uh, it was a big deal, and it kind of didn't. didn't matter. <laughs> Uh, but let's talk about how it was a big deal. So you mentioned some of the, the formats, some of the format features, but it, it also had this really cool way of dealing with outside file systems. So you, you probably don't remember this, but for a long time, if you were a Mac user and like you needed to transfer files with a PC, it was like yeah, bad jumping through hoops, right? Because you had to get the right format, and, like do it in the right way. BOS basically loaded other file systems dynamically, almost like a driver system. So a BOS machine could read or write to FAT16, FAT32, or even Apple's HFS right out of the box. So you'd plug it in, plug in an HFS drive, and the OS would pull in and activate the driver for that file system, and you'd be, you'd be ready to go. Really a very cool modular approach to these sorts of issues. Well, okay, look, there wasn't much of a library of third-party BOS applications, mostly because of how few machines shipped, and we'll talk about that later on. But it, it's not for the lack of a good development environment. Reports say that the APIs included with BOS were clean, they were well-designed, and developers could use Perl, Python, Bash, C++, and more to not only create their own applications and scripts, but to send messages, content, and even control other applications on the system. Pretty impressive. Yeah, I think this was a real smart move. If you want to bring developers to your new platform, basically give them the tools they're used to. Yeah. Where, exactly. you know, that was a big complaint with Mac OS X in the early days. Like, oh, I got to learn Objective C. Like, what is this? Right. And eventually people got on board. But I think if you're starting from zero, it's really smart to adopt the technologies of the day. And if you, if you look through that list, Perl, Python, Bash, and C all still around today. Yeah. That's true. Even Perl somehow. It kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, of, of WebOS. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I mean, they shared the same fate. Tell me, did LG put BOS on refrigerators? <laughs> uh, they haven't done that much of a disservice to the poor operating system. That's good. Well, as BOS ran on PowerPC systems, running on Macs also became a thing. For a short time, Mac clone maker power computing 
And you'll remember them if you listen to episode zero yet again. Wow, there are so many callbacks, so many references to being a Relay FM member. <laughs> this is good stuff. Anyway, Mac Clone Maker Power Computing even bundled BOS on a CD with their Mac clones, and their systems were modified to dual boot between BOS and Mac OS System 7. How do you think Apple felt about that? Uh, I'm sure they were very displeased. Yeah. It's like, we're going to license your OS. We're just going to throw a BOS CD in there. If they want to boot that, they can boot that too. Might as well throw a Windows CD in the box too. Why not, you know? Yeah. <laughs> we we talked about the 603E and this, uh, this shared hardware between the B-Box and Macs. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out only eight Apple-made Macs had the capability of booting BOS. Oh. We have an article about this in the show notes. Uh, you could basically buy a license for BOS for $35, and then Mac users could check out an alternative to what was coming with Mac OS X. But I don't think this ever really took off. I can't imagine yeah. a bunch of Mac users like wondering BOS on their performance or whatever. Interesting. So B-Box, I mean, we're talking about it here, and, and I hadn't heard of it, and you knew a, a bit, but not everything. So it's logical to presume that this wasn't a smashing success. Um, <laughs> B-Box was a bit of a failure, and after the actual hardware failed, BOS, because it still had things that were good about it, was ported to the x86 platform, with Release 3 being the first version capable of running on x86. Uh, BOS Release 5 came out in March 2000, which is, I mean, at this point, we're getting pretty close to the launch of Mac OS. So Kodiak Beta was... Was that late 99 or? Uh, no, it was in 2000. Early 2000. Okay. Yeah. And uh, release five of BOS was the final version of BOS. It just included minor updates to the audio and networking subsystems. Wasn't huge. And it came in two editions, personal and professional. The former could be booted from within Windows or Linux to let people tinker with the system, hmm. while the professional uh, version was only available for developers and only through third-party retailers. Well, R5 was the final version of BOS, like you said. A spinoff named BOS for Internet Appliances, or BAI, BOSIA, IA, BIA. Yeah. That's a good name. BIA carried on. It was basically <laughs> a stripped down version of the operating system for embedded systems. So things, you know, embedded systems include things like ATMs, sure. uh, you know, vending machines, basically anything with a tiny computer in it. Like a Windows CE style kind of, right? Yeah. I think OS 2 lived on as a embedded systems OS for a long time. So anyways, so B is like, ah, we'll do this. We'll just take our really strong core and we'll sell it. We'll license it for people who need an embedded OS. Interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. They got rid of the interface. Uh, so no more uh, B menu, but they basically replaced it with the Opera browser and so you would launch this, you'd connect to it, you'd have the Opera browser, and then developers could basically hook up any, th- any UI they needed for their embedded system through the browser. Uh, kind of like Chrome OS, you know? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, a little, very little. I mean, just, just the fact that the UI is a browser. And B really thought that this would take off because of BOS's phenomenal audio and video support. Uh, all that was really... Just like we have on the Mac now, we have core audio and core video. Some of that was in BOS, those ideas. And they thought, oh, maybe we could power a bunch of audio and uh, video devices. It didn't really go that well. Um, but I want you to tell me about the this uh, Sony because it is one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, so this device was called the Sony E-Villa. That's a good name. Mm-hmm. It was a $500 internet appliance. Ouch. 
that gave users access to the internet, email, and audio and video playback for a cool $22 a month. Um, it was kind of like a an all-in-one computer. It had a vertical CRT rather than horizontal, which is kind of weird. It's weird. It had no hard drive, which is weird. And Sony designed it to save media to, this is classic Sony, its own memory sticks, which were no doubt proprietary. <laughs> Jeez. Yikes. And uh, you look at this machine and this, oh, when did it come? When did it even come out? It looks 10 years older than it actually is. Yeah, uh, it was in 2001. Ouch. Uh, a real situation. Yeah. It was on the market for three months. Mm. So th- we're talking like pure end of days webOS timeframes here. Yeah, I was going to say that sounds like a Palm product. <laughs> they were better looking. Ouch. Customers were given full refunds for both the hardware and any months of access they had paid for. Hey, that's pretty good. Yeah, I and mean, I think Sony felt bad. Yeah. So yeah, in the end, BIA didn't take off. It showed up on a few commercial products, but we're talking about less than a dozen pieces of hardware probably. And uh, that meant that the revenue B needed to keep the doors open just wasn't there. Yeah, that's not good. If mm-hmm. we if we dial back a little bit, by the late 1990s, the writing was really on the wall for B. The B box and its groundbreaking operating system didn't make a dent at all in PC or Mac sales. In fact, I think total, total unit sales were fewer than 2,000 units. Is that correct? Yikes. I mean, I, I know I've looked for one over the years. You can't find no. a B box. No, they're, they're impossible to find. There's this little tool that tells you when the last time something's been listed on eBay, and it didn't even have record of B-Box. So I don't even know <laughs> if there's ever been one for sale or if it's been so long that it's been, you know, a decade or whatever. Anyway, yeah, <laughs> uh, that's not so good. Uh, the company was obviously in trouble, and they were looking for a possible savior in its co-founder's old boss. Apple. In 1996, Apple's starting to shop around for an operating system um, because they're really kind of fallen behind and they need their next generation OS, which we know became Mac OS X. And uh, B was at the table. Uh, Gasset and Apple went back and forth, but they just, they couldn't close a deal. Uh, Apple thought B was worth somewhere around $50 million, but Gasset opened talks with a $500 million price tag. Apple actually ended up making a final offer for $200 million after several rounds, Uh, but it just, it didn't happen. They couldn't conclude on anything. B pushed back with a final price of $275 million. And what did Apple say, Stephen? No, thank you. Yeah. So it didn't work out. The irony is they ended up buying Next Computer Company for $400 million, Mm -hmm. (laughs) way more than the B number. Yeah. And, and that's a story for a different time. Um, but I think everyone, including SA, says that this was the right call. And in fact, in hindsight, I would argue that Apple buying Next is one of the most important tech acquisitions of all time. Is that a bold statement? <laughs> no, no. Next was impressive in its own right. But I don't know that at the time, I mean, it was a little more fleshed out than B was at, at the time of acquisition, but really they were buying jobs. Back to Apple. And and that ended up being, like we've mentioned, absolutely the right call. Well, I think Next Step and then later OpenStep was more fully featured than BOS. Uh, But the companies were very similar. They both had had hardware. They had failed in the hardware business. They they had software. They needed bailing out. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so so Apple and B don't don't join up. Uh, The company kind of staggers on. B-Box is gone. BIA is a failure. And in 2001, it was purchased for a measly $11 million by none other than Palm. 
Remember when I said time is a perfect circle? It's amazing. <laughs> I feel like every episode is just a, like becoming the same and it's all interconnected. It oh, is. Oh, man. Yeah. So in early 2002, the Palm-owned B, uh, because Palm purchased them, sues Microsoft for what it called anti-competitive behavior. Uh, the company claimed that Microsoft had entered into agreements with PC makers, thereby blocking B's effort at being able to be sold alongside Windows on PC hardware. And uh, you know what? I don't blame B for a second, and Microsoft is probably guilty. Uh, further evidence of this is the fact that, well, either Microsoft didn't want to go to court, or they probably knew they would lose, and they ended up settling with Palm slash B for $23.3 million. Go Palm, I guess. I know, right? Way to go. Small victories. Hey, you know, that's a net positive. Uh, they bought them for $11 million and got 23.3 back. Oh, yeah. Look at that. Way to go. <laughs> hey, that doesn't include legal fees and everything, but, you know, that's a small, small note. BOS is sort of slowly put out to pasture. And about this time, a volunteer group of developers began working on a project known as OpenBOS in an attempt to reverse engineer and recreate the operating system, or at least enough of it to run third-party BOS software titles. Which, again, there's not many of, but I guess, you know, BOS is cool. People wanted to run it again. Uh, this is now known as Haiku because the BOS trademark issues that to get away from. So Haiku is first alpha shipped in 2009. In 2018, the first beta appeared. And as of this recording, the work is ongoing. Very often there are nightly builds of Haiku. You can go run run it, go download and run it right now from the nonprofit's website. And if you do what I did, I set up BOS Release 5 in VirtualBox on my Mac mm. and played with it for a while. Uh, and so we have links to all that stuff if you want to if you want to play with BOS, it's not that hard to do. I got to do it. I never got around to it, but it looks like a lot of fun. Yeah, it's cool in VirtualBox. And, uh, it, you know, it is of its time. It is a very 90s operating system. But you sure. can feel that even even then, like, there's something special about it. There's no sign of it anymore, really, other than this, this Haiku project. And I'll tell you what, it looks uh, visually pretty dang similar. They haven't updated a lot on the uh, graphical front. I have to imagine that's on purpose. But yeah, yeah, Haiku looks very similar to BOS. Honestly, if you wanted to get a good feel of it, you could run Haiku. That would give you, without uh, having to go through VirtualBox and running yeah. some disk image of BOS. Sure, sure. And it probably feels slightly more modernized, I'd imagine. So what can we learn here, Quinn? What lessons do you walk away with this from? Uh, the Illuminati exists. and No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, wow. You know, it's... Um... There are so many lessons to learn. One is that computers are the way that they are now, and they are amazing, and we should be lucky because of a lot of companies like B and dozens of others that came up with really unique and innovative ideas for the time that just for whatever reason, be it poor marketing or not offering a very good value proposition, just didn't find a foothold in the market. But that's not to say that their kind of contributions to computers as we know them have gone uh, unnoticed. Well, maybe they've been unnoticed, but that we're not uh, ungrateful, I should say. Yeah, I think the thing I think about is just it was so interesting that a company went after Apple because in the 90s, Apple was in pretty sorry shape. Right. I, I think that there are lessons to be learned there about when a company thinks about who they want to compete with. You shouldn't underestimate any target. Like Apple, right? Still, Apple won. That's because they bought Next. But even before Steve Jobs came back, 
things like the B-Box and everything were already really, really struggling. And uh, I, I find that just uh, super interesting to think about how close B was to succeeding, you know, if, if Apple had bought them and if they had what that would look like. So I don't know if BOS had what Apple really needed. Yeah. And it's just interesting to think about that alternative. Right. And what would have next become or the company that purchased next end jobs? Really interesting to think it's, about. It's it's just rare that I mean the, all the bunch of the products we've talked about in the way that BOS did and the B box did, right? Sort of slowly fading and then being gone. Yeah. But B was so close to making it. So, I mean, at the table and then and the things went the other way. And that is kind of rare and i think it's just it's fun to it's fun to consider and it's cool that you can still play with this a lot of the things we talk about are difficult to put your hands on um, but playing with haiku playing with bos in a virtual machine you can relive these days and uh, i think people should go do that because it's it's interesting to see ui concepts like you said the the b menu having really interesting ideas in some ways a lot of that feels really modern and i think that there are lessons to be learned there too Yeah. There's one last thing that I think is really important to remember. Almost every tech company in the 80s and 90s were involved with Palm in some form or fashion. (laughs) The kiss of death. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, There you have it. Beat Computer. We did it. They existed. We did it. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Blinking lights. Couldn't save them. What can you do? Hey, thank you so much for listening. We appreciate all of your support. And uh, you should probably do the outro, Stephen. <laughs> I'll do the outro, yeah. So okay, okay. If, if you want to find links to the stuff we spoke about, and there's a lot of stuff, you can go dig into all this history. You want to head over to our website, relay.fm slash flashback slash six. While you're there, you can send us an email with feedback or follow-up. You can sign up to become a member, which we would greatly appreciate. And uh, I do have to say, we asked people last time to review the show and send us some screenshots and, uh, you know, they're, they're starting to trickle in, but let's uh, see if we get a few, a few more. We'll get the pebble on the list. So Yeah, let's do it. Quinn, where can people find you out on the World Wide Web? Sure. You can find me on all of the socials at SnazzyQ and on YouTube at YouTube.com slash Snazzy. You can find me on a bunch of other shows here at Relay FM. You can find my blog at 512pixels.net. And you can find me on Twitter as ISMH. Until our next episode, Quinn, say goodbye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Adios.